Oh, what a beautiful song, huh? Heartfelt. I hope you I hope you sang it with all your heart this morning. Welcome to Gateway. Thank you for being here and thank you for fighting through the rain. Could be snow in a couple months, right? We're due we're due a, a big snow uh, this winter, I think. I thank you for being here. If you're a guest, I especially am uh, pleased that you're here and hope that you enjoy the service. If you have kids, that your kids uh, enjoy being next door. They're well taken care of. They are uh, having a blast, I promise. And if uh, they're not, you'll know about it, right? So, hey, we are in week three of our 10-message journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Week three. So we're almost a third of the way there, and this is, uh, this is a great passage of Scripture. This is some of the most challenging, life-changing, revolutionary teaching that Jesus gave. I want you to make sure you understand it in the light of the Old Testament, because that's what these people would have known well. And so Jesus is talking to them, and it is, uh, it is radical. This is the longest recorded single talk given by Jesus. And uh, what he's saying here in a nutshell is if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my followers, you're going to have to live counter to the culture. It's going to be countercultural. And uh, you're going to have to view things differently. You're going to have to look at the world differently. You're going to have to look at your relationships differently than you have been. And you're definitely going to have to look at things differently than, the, than your, the, your neighbor is, the world is. You can't have the same worldview as someone who doesn't follow me, Jesus says. You can't do it. And, uh, and so he preaches this sermon and he begins the sermon. He's kind of got a hook by talking about being blessed. Everybody wants to be blessed. Everybody here wants to be blessed, right? We love God's blessing. Amen. Love God's blessing. Uh, give us more of it, right? God, right? Give us more of it. But God, uh, Jesus rather, says that God blesses us a little bit differently. Again, this whole, this whole um, gospel, Jesus' whole ministry was kind of flipped upside down. It was, you know, if you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. If you want to be the the leader, you have to be the servant. And so um, that's what this is all about. He's starting to plant these seeds in the people. And he said, you know, if you're going to be blessed, you got you to come not pridefully. You don't, you don't come to me demanding something. You don't come to me, uh, you know, telling me what I'm going to do for you. You know, a lot of people today in, in the Christian world, even some preachers, religious people, they they have this view that they can command God, you know, that they, they make a demand on God. They can make a command on God, and he has to honor that. But God says, uh, Jesus says here, no, God wants you to come in brokenness and humility. That's where your blessing comes from. He wants you to be hungry and thirsty. He, he wants you to develop a, a forgiving heart and a giving heart, and a, he wants you to make peace instead of trying to always have your way. He wants you to stand firm and tall when people are assaulting you, persecuting you. He doesn't want you to shrink back, to cower, to run in fear. He wants you to stand tall because you stand in the company of a lot of other people 
throughout the ages. And now here we are 2,000 years from this sermon, and there are countless people who stood in the face of adversity. And some of them went to their death. <clears throat> One particular guy was named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you have heard of this guy? German theologian, young guy. He died at the age of 39 at the hands of Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. And there were a lot of churches. I actually used a sermon illustration a few weeks ago about churches wholeheartedly who bought into Hitler's idea that the Jewish people were somehow an inferior race, that they needed to be eliminated from society, that they were a danger. And entire churches and Christians and even theologians bought into this. <clears throat> they were caught up with the nationalism. They were caught up with Hitler's love for his country, the fatherland. And so they wanted to also love the fatherland. You know, this is also a lesson for us as Americans. We, we love our country, amen? I love my country. I fly a flag in front of my house. But I do not love my country more than I love my God. And there, uh, there is a clear distinction between my patriotism and my love for God. And I hope there is for you too. And we have to be careful in this day and age not to uh, mix the two in such a way that they can't be separated. God loves America, but God loves every nation and wants all people to come to a knowledge of his son as savior. <clears throat> but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was put to death by Adolf Hitler because he wouldn't bow. He wouldn't give in. He didn't cave to Hitler's idea that somehow the Aryan race, the German race was better than everybody else and everybody else needed to be eliminated and so at the age of 39, uh, Hitler put him to death. Before he died, he wrote a lot of stuff. He was in prison for a while. And he said this about the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> he said, humanly speaking, it is possible to understand the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. But Jesus knows only one possibility, simple surrender and obedience not interpreting or applying it, but doing it and obeying it. That is the only way to hear his words. He does not mean for us to discuss it as an ideal. He really means for us to get on with it. And so I ask you this morning, are you ready to get on with it? Are you willing to get on with it? Because some of the ideas here, some of the, uh, the, the stuff that Jesus teaches on is going to it challenged first century people. It's definitely going to challenge 21st century people. Last week we said that all of this kind of life leads to being blessed. The blessing isn't ours to keep, right? I was so, um, I, lo I love seeing uh, pictures on Facebook or wherever they are on social media of, of Christians serving. Many of you took some time this past week and you were painting and cleaning and doing all sorts of service projects. And I just think that's awesome because that's, that's a way to be salt and light. Salt and light. And last week's message was salt and light. We're not here to keep the blessing to ourselves. We exist now. Our constitution is salt and light. And it's, it's only use is to be used, right? It's not to, to hoard it or to keep it all to ourselves. So if you're if, if your lifestyle is not in such a way that you can share 
who you are and what Jesus means to you to other people, then you need to look at your lifestyle. You need to build in some opportunities to do that. And maybe you took some of those suggestions. I gave you 10 suggestions last week. Maybe you cleaned up your street. Anybody clean up your street? You get busy with that. It's keeping young families from moving into your neighborhood. Possibly. You need to do stuff in order to uh, uh, be salt and light. Maybe uh, you're at Valley Park this week. I'm not going to ask you if you were. Some of you may live in Putnam County. Maybe some of you don't. Uh, I was at Valley Park a couple times this week, and I was even there yesterday for the big festival. And so at the, uh, at the, this, the, the light is a very light, you may, may not ought to go down there from my wife. I mean, you know, when your wife is serious command mode and when she's do it if you want to, but so that was a do it if you want to. So I went down there and I, I walked around, I walked around, I met people. I saw a couple guys who were dressed like they shouldn't have been dressed, <clears throat> but it was a good experience. I even saw someone I knew down there. Yeah. I don't think he saw me because we were, it was a big field. But you know what I concluded about that Metro Valley Pagan Pride event? They're just, they're just normal people. They're just normal people who don't know Jesus. They're normal people who don't know Jesus and we need to pray for them and for relationships in their life that they would come to know Jesus in some way. And so <clears throat> there were no violent protests. There were no Bibles being thrown. Uh, it, was, it was just a little kind of a non-event, kind of a small event. So uh, uh, I don't know how much salt and light I was, but I did a lot of smiling uh, I, I had, I was, I was not dressed like most of the people there. I had white tennis shoes on. I don't know, I'd never wear white tennis shoes. But they kind of looked at me like, you're going to start something, aren't you? I'm not going to start anything. I just smiled. I talked. I complimented. I did a lot of things like that. And uh, just let me, let, let me tell you, they were looking for some pushback. But I don't think they got it. I don't think they got it. But I want to tell you something from last Sunday night until Friday night, that place was covered in prayer and maybe all day Saturday too. And that's the best thing we can do. Prayer and teach our kids the truth of who God is and the gospel of Christ. Well, we've, we've looked at uh, two sections. This is the third section. It's going to be verses 17 to 20. And we're going to call this message righteousness. <clears throat> righteousness because that's the title that we get in our Bible, and oftentimes that title that's already in the Bible is good enough. It's good enough. Righteousness. A simple definition of righteousness is simply being right with God. You know, there are a lot of good people. There are a lot of noble people. There are a lot of people who do good things, but they're not right with God. And, and there's a difference there. A lot of people say, well, surely she's going to heaven because she was such a good person. Okay, if that were a qualification, maybe, but the question is, is she, was she right with God? Was she right with God? That's what righteousness means. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and the Gospels, you know that when Jesus started his ministry, he had many adversaries. 
you know, and the longer he teached, the more they pushed back on him because Jesus almost immediately won the favor of the crowds. In Mark chapter 1, this is not on the screen, but in Mark 1, the Bible says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The teachers of law must have got boring by that time. They were like, blah, 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 you know, kind of like, a, who was it, Charlie Brown listening to his teacher, wonk, 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 wonk. Jesus was different. It was, he was interesting. He was counter to what they were teaching. And so most of the Jewish leaders and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they had issue with him based on his interpretation of the law. They had issue with him. And they started this rumor about Jesus they started this rumor that he was seditious, that he was against the law, that he was subverting the law. You know, that was, their, that was their big thing. They wanted to get him out of the way, so there was two ways to do that. They could get him in trouble with the Roman government and say, hey, he is, uh, he, he is trying to rebel. He's trying to form a rebellion and overthrow the Roman government. He doesn't want to obey your law. And of course, you remember Herod, who represented the Roman government. He said, I don't, I don't find any fault in this man. And the other way was to get him in trouble with the people. So the way to get him in trouble with the people is to tell the people, this guy's not for you. He, you know what you've been learning your whole life about the law, about being right with God. He's changing all that. In fact, we saw him picking corn on the Sabbath day. <gasps> and lots of stuff like that. We saw him do some work. He healed this guy. And they overlooked the fact that he healed him. It's just that he did it on the Sabbath day. So they started this rumor that he was against the Mosaic law. So when Jesus starts his sermon, after he does the introduction there, he says, you're blessed. Your blessing's not just for you, it's to be salt and light. And then he said this. Here's kind of, as we get into the meat of his sermon, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Boom. Whatever they've been telling you, what you've heard, all the rumors, forget about it. I'm telling you, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, the law or the prophets, the law and the prophets, he's referring to the entirety of the Jewish scriptures. It was common in the first century to refer to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, as the, uh, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. That was just about all of it. Now, for the Jewish person, this body of teaching that we would call the Old Testament was called the Tanakh. The Tanakh. The Tanakh is a word, T-N-K, uh, are the consonants there, that, that stood for, first of all, the Torah. The Torah was the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch, five, the laws. And, uh, and, and so the books of Moses... And then net, uh, nevim is a word that refers to the prophets. That word actually means spokesperson. These people spoke for God. And then the K stood for ketuvim. K 
Ketuvim is a word that means the writings. And this would include all of the, all the books that aren't prophecy or uh, books of the law. This would be, this would be the uh, book of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, the book of Ruth, Lamentations, and some historical books like Ezra and Nehemiah. So in Jesus' day, he would just refer to the, the law and the prophets. And everybody knew he was talking about everything, everything that had been handed down to them. In Matthew twenty two forty, when Jesus was giving the great commandment, remember the lawyer said, hey, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what Jesus is saying here by this opening line is this. What he's saying to the people is, look, don't think I have come to get rid of it. He said, no, I stand with God's word. I stand there. I hope you can say that today in your life. It's the most important place you will ever stand with God's word. It will become increasingly unpopular for you to stand with God's word. You know it? It's going to become increasingly unpopular for you to stand with God's word. Because what God's word says, it has always said. People may interpret it. People may try to put a spin on it. People may try to push it back. People may try to say, well, that's old fashioned. But it is the place to stand because it has never changed and it will never let us down. I stand with God's word. <clears throat> Jesus was actually staying, I, I stand as God's word. He said, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. So I stand not just with God's word. Jesus was saying, we can't say this, but I stand as God's word. Now they wouldn't fully understand what he meant when he said, I've come to fulfill them until later. But I want to tell you something, folks, in this changing culture that we live in, in this climate of tolerance and acceptance of anything, Christians... First, we have to stand with God's word. That's where we go first. If you have a problem with where I stand, you have a problem with God. Now, I didn't say we had to be hateful about it. I, 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 you know, we can live in the world. We're just not of the world because we have a different set of values. We have a different set of beliefs. We have a different set of motivating factors in our life. You want, you want to know where you should stand on an issue? First, check the word of God. Check it first. If you can't find where to stand by checking the word of God on your particular issue, then get some help. Call a friend. You know, you can phone a friend today. Call someone you think who studies the Bible a little more than you do. We'll help you understand where God stands on this issue. And then he says this. <clears throat> he says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, I grew up on the old King James Version. I don't really read it a whole lot today because it's hard to understand. 
And I want a modern translation. You know, on the day of Pentecost, when the, the disciples spoke in tongues, the Bible says that got interpreted in their own dialect. That wasn't just their language. It was howdy, y'all. How y'all doing? Or for some people, Ewan's, are Ewan's okay? Or some of my Ohio friends say these ones and those ones. No, no, just these and those. Not these ones and those ones, just these. And, uh, and so I want, a, I want a modern version that's true, faithful to the original. By the way, there's the King James Version you have today is not the King James Version. You couldn't read the King James Version because it was written in Old English. I'm not disparaging the King James. I'm saying just don't die on that hill. Use a version you can understand that's true to the Scripture. But when I, when I grew up, I was raised on the King James Version, and the words here were jot and tittle. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from this law. And for most of my life, I'm like, what's a tittle? What's a jot? And, uh, uh, you know, the modern versions say the smallest letter. So a jot was really a yod. A yod is a letter in the, it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, alphabet. And a tittle, a tittle, the easiest way to explain a tittle is sometimes when you make a, when you make a letter... I should have put this on the screen. Sometimes when you make a letter, it might look like another letter except for just a little tiny difference. So think of making, a, uh, think of making an N. And if, think of making an N. So now if you made an uh, maybe I'll do it this way. If you made an N and then just put a little curve on it, that little curve would be the tittle. In, in the, in the in, uh, Hebrew language, there were, there were tittles, but really it was just a stroke of a pen. And what Jesus is saying here, wow, this, every single part of God's word. And I think he's saying something about transmission of God's word. You know, we could say, oh, the originals were inspired, but what we have is not. No, I think God's been involved in the not just the original inspiration, but the transmission of his word. The Bible is the most printed book in history. You have access to it, access to it on your phone in lots of different languages. It is the most read book throughout history. Now, I don't think it's getting the read that it should be getting now, but we should be giving it the reads. So what's he saying here? Here's the point he's making. Not only is uh, he saying, I stand with God's word, but he's saying God has spoken and he is faithful to his word. Every jot and tittle, every part of it, God is faithful to that. The every apostrophe, every semicolon, every colon, every nya. I don't know what that's called in, the, uh, in, in uh, Spanish, but there's a nia. Anybody know what that's called? Oh, huh? 
Yeah, we said that last couple weeks ago, didn't we? I forgot. So here's what the New Living Translation, how it puts this verse. It says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Do you believe that God has spoken and that he is faithful to it? Anybody here? You believe that God has spoken and he's faithful to what he said? I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that, folks, because in a tumultuous time, in a changing time, in a, in a time where, where uh, so many people are pushing back and living in a way against God's word, we need a standard. We need to know not only is this God's word, but this is God's word. And you can trust that it. it's not just the words of man. It's just not something that's been translated and, and, uh, and uh, you know, fiddled with and, and uh, altered and edited and revised over the years. No, this is the word of God. It's God's word. Now, if you knew for a fact that there was an almighty being who created us, who made us, who gave us everything we have, who is intricately involved in the details of your life who gave his son to die for you on Calvary so you could live eternally with him if you knew this if you're really convinced about this and he wrote a book for you wouldn't you read it wouldn't you want to read it I was listening this morning to my our daily bread devotional, odb.org. You can get them too, right to your email. Click, it speaks for you. Close your eyes, let it speak to you. But today's devotion was questions. Just ask questions, ask questions. And you know, Jesus asked questions. We can ask questions of God's word. And I wanna tell you something, God has spoken and he has answers for your questions. So Jesus goes on to highlight as we uh, exposit our way through this text, he goes on to talk about how important this is to teach, not just man-made stuff, but what God said. He says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You know, there was I'm not going to spend much time on this, but there were some teachers of the law who were, who were using the law to their, benef to their benefit. Jesus confronted them one time when he talked about this thing called Corbin. Corbin was a, was a, a amount of money that was put aside for aging parents. And if, uh, if the young person used that money, he, he was neglecting his parents. So he was dishonoring his father and mother, and Jesus had an interaction with that. And so the Pharisees would use that to their advantage. They would use that money and forget your aging parents. Or you might remember the time when, when this woman came to, the, the people brought this woman to Jesus and she was caught in the act of adultery. Remember that? And they wanted to stone her to death. And Jesus kind of deflected that. But last I remember, adultery takes Two people, right? So they were willing to overlook that for their buddy, most likely, who was in the crowd. And, uh, and, and so Jesus, he, he dealt with this so much. But he says, if you, 
If you set one of these aside, you're least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've heard a few amens here this morning. And I think the crowd that day would have stood up and said, amen. Amen. Let it be so in agreement with him. You know, I, I just want you to know it's okay to agree with the preacher sometimes. There's some things you don't have to agree with me about. Uh, but it's okay to agree with the preacher. Amen. Uh, and uh, it actually uh, makes me finish preaching sooner. <laughs> yeah, I, if there's enough of them, I just close the book and say, well, I think you got it. I think you got it. Let's just sing. Let's sing go home. But a lot of times I, I'm not sure you got it. So I got to keep trying different ways, you know, and beat it in there a little more. Well, uh, I think the people here were saying, amen. Amen. Teach the law. Teach the law. If you do the right thing, you're great in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I, I think they were buying into what Jesus was saying. I think they were liking that sermon. I think they were liking it. And then Jesus did something that he often did. He, he kind of came at it from a different angle and I think that I think they stopped amening and they sat down. They're like, whoa, what did he just say? He said this, verse 20, our last verse. He's for I tell you that unless your righteousness, being right with God, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. They're like, ah, oh, man, he put the bait out there and set the hook and jerked the line. How can we be more righteous than the Pharisees? They're the most righteous people. Now, there was, there was this animosity between the people and the Pharisees, but that did not stop the people from looking at the Pharisees and saying, well, they're the, they're the, uh, you know, they're the law keepers. They're the ones who've given us this the scrolls, they're the ones who are reading it in the, in the, in the uh, synagogue. They're the ones. They're the ones doing this. How can we, just normal people, be more righteous than they are? Now imagine, as there always were, there were Pharisees hanging out on the sides thinking, yeah, yeah, finally, finally, give us a little cred here. We are righteous. We are the righteous ones. But what's going on here? Now, we know we've, we live on this side of the book. We live this many years later. We know Jesus was setting them up, too. Isn't it amazing how Jesus set everybody up? Everybody was going to take it to the gut. These people uh, had a long history. Not tremendously long, not as long as the law and the prophets, but sometime between Malachi and Matthew, there, there, there was no word from God, you know, after Malachi. And these teachers, these rabbis sprang up. They grew up. This is what we call the silent years or the intertestamental period between the testaments. And uh, two particular uh, rabbis who influenced the first century, one was named Rabbi Shammai and one was named uh, Rabbi Hillel. And these guys uh, uh, approached the law a little bit differently. Shammai was a hardliner. It was very by the book. And Hillel was more philosophical, but still obedience was the way. And uh, both of them lived... One, they both kind of lived in Jesus' time frame. I think Hillel may have died really early when Jesus was just a boy. 
Some say Shammai lived to about AD 30, which was when Jesus uh, you know, started his ministry. And these men were responsible for compiling all the writings of all rabbis who had ever lived. And it was called the Mishnah. If you're familiar with Jew- Judaism, you know they have the Old Testament, but they also have what everybody wrote about the Old Testament. It'd be like you and I collecting all the commentaries in the world. Commentaries is what people think about the Bible. There weren't that many then, but there was a lot. And the Mishnah was included all rabbinical teaching. So you had the law and then the Shammai and Hillel and some others, they compiled all the writings. And so a first century Jew could say, well, you know, I know that we're not supposed to do this, but Rabbi Hillel says we can do it in this way. Yeah, but Rabbi Shammai says we can, we can only do it in this way. And so these teachings became just as binding on the people as the Old Testament law. And, uh, the, and, and there developed several sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects of people, Jewish people. There were the, there were the Pharisees, there were the uh, Sadducees, there were the Essenes, there were the Zealots, and there were probably two or three others who grew up, but the, the most famous were the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the Pharisees, the the word for Pharisee means separated. So they took pride in the the thought that they were separate. They were different than the people. They They were a little bit better. They were a little bit better. The apostle Paul said in Acts 26, 5, that the Pharisaical sect was the most strict. It was the strictest sect of the, of the Jewish religion. The Pharisees, and you know today what it means to say you're Pharisaical, right? It means you're legalistic. And so they were, they became so separate in the first century that they didn't even want to stop and dirty their hands by helping a man who'd been beaten laying on the road to Jericho because ceremonially they would have been unclean. That's how their religion got in their way of their relationship. When you're so concerned with this and that and this and that that you forget that's a human being that's a person he needs jesus just like i do and the ground at the foot of the cross is level we both need him desperately and so here here's what you you know in matthew 23 you might say well why would the people look at the pharisees and say they're the righteous ones how could i ever We know that because in Matthew 23, Jesus admitted that they were the keepers of the law. Matthew 23, if you've never read Matthew 23, it's a fun read because Jesus, man, he's just beating up on these Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He he just makes fun of them. Really, it's it's a fun passage if you're into that. And uh, it was, it was Jesus just really raking them, but that's Matthew 23. This is Matthew five. And in, in Matthew 23, he said that the reason that we have a problem with them is because they preach, but they don't practice what they preach. They wanna tell you what to do, but they don't wanna do it. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's telling the people, hey, look, um, you gotta be better than they are. And as he would unfold this sermon, and the next time we preach this on October one, we got foundations next week, it'll make a little more sense to you what they said was this, but I want to tell you what, what they missed in what they said. They said, don't murder, but I want to tell you what they missed. They missed anger. They missed hatred. They missed the heart of the law. That's what they missed. 
So what Jesus is doing here, this is kind of like an introduction to the October 1st. He's saying this. He's saying righteousness does not come from what you do. Doesn't come from what you do. Any Pharisees in the crowd would have taken offense to this now. What do you mean? I've been obedient. I've been doing all this. It's like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, I've already done all that. Can I get into heaven? I've already done all that. Jesus said, well, here, look, just do this one more thing. He says, oh, man, I can't do that. We can't do enough to be considered righteous in the eyes of God. We can't. We're not good enough. None of us are good enough. Yet there are some Christians today who still have in their minds that they have to earn God's love. They have to earn it. And really, God's love is there already. You need to live in it. One of the most famous Pharisees that I just mentioned was named Saul and then Paul. He's, he learned this lesson. He said in Philippians 3, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, that's the best one, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, was faultless. Look at all I've done. Look at me. And then he, he says something else, and he actually uses a word here that means Well, I have a confession to make. My wife and I went to the Valley Park this past week uh, to do a prayer walk. And we took our grand dog. We took our grand dog. And I don't know why, but they, they need more bags in the park. You with me? You tracking? And you, you can't just tell him, no, hold that. Wait till you get home. And uh, so we made a donation to the park. <laughs> We're sorry. I hope you didn't step in it. <laughs> this word Paul uses here is that word. It's that word. He's talking about everything he had done, all that stuff you see on the screen. He uses this word. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them that word. They've cleaned it up here and it says garbage. That I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Everything I've done, all my good accomplishments, the top, top stuff in my life is that word, Paul said. So here's, here's what he's trying to say. He said, righteousness doesn't come from what you do. Righteousness can only come through faith in Christ. Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Someone said, all the sin Jesus ever knew was my sin. All the righteousness I will ever have is his righteousness imputed to me. So you may wonder, um, you know, we're saved by grace through faith for good works. What about the law then? What was it for? Jesus said 
He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What's it for? These are all good questions. We're going to answer them in two weeks. But I'm going to leave you with this quote from Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground, murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters. We are all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. So to be right with God, we fall on his grace. That's righteousness. That's what Jesus was teaching. He was turning their world upside down. It's not about what you do. It's about your relationship with me. It's preparing the way for them to come to him in faith. So if you're here today and you've never expressed your faith in Christ, maybe you should do that today. Maybe you should say, hey, I stand with him. I stand with his word. I stand with Jesus. We want to invite you to do that. We want to invite you to do that. Maybe it's the first time you've done it. If you've never followed that up with baptism, we'd, we'd love to see you do that today. Baptism was the first thing Jesus did when he started his ministry and the last thing he commanded before he left. We think it's pretty important. You can't leave it out of your faith. If you've done all that and you... You want, to, you want to put roots down here. You want to say, hey, let's partner together. I want to be a part of this fellowship so that we can do what God has called us to do in this area. Then we invite you to come. I'll be standing over there, and uh, Joe will be over here. If you want to pray around this platform, just come and do that. If you want someone to pray with you, come stand by the uh, stage. If you want to talk to us, we'll be over there in the cubbies. So let's pray now. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you, God, that you give us your righteousness when we come to you in faith. Thank you, Lord, that it's not what we do because we couldn't do enough and we'd wear ourselves out trying to do it, but it's, it's who we are. And more importantly, it's who you are, God. And I pray that this message would sink in, that we'd live in your grace and righteousness. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.